Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. One of the things I enjoy Sunday when these testimonies are revealed is have you noticed there's no regret? That all of us come to a point in our life where what we want to see God do or what we hope that one day we would have done for the Lord when we bottom out and realize we're never going to get there by our own work, that God repurposes us. And yet when you've heard the testimonies of the people sitting in these chairs and telling their story, none of them say, I wish he'd have done something different. Now, we always don't like the path. It's, it's available that we don't care for the path he took us down, but the destination is always worthwhile. So as we study the book of Ephesians, we want to ask you, if you sat in these chairs, what would be the answer you would give to this question? How has knowing Jesus repurposed you? If you're visiting this morning, uh, we're, we're glad you're with us. My name's Mark, and I get the privilege of being one of the ministers here at the church. And we're in the middle of this series, in the fourth chapter of Ephesians, if you'll open your Bibles, that we're calling Repurposed, where Paul writes a letter to the Christians in a town of Ephesus, and he's challenging them to understand what he's called them to. That, that the things that he gave us, first three chapters, in Christ, now prove themselves in our daily lives and the choices that we get to make. Uh, last week, Chad Ragsdale spoke. Uh, my family and I got the opportunity to go back for my father's uh, 80th birthday party, and it was a lot of fun uh, going back for that. It's, it's nice to go back to Indiana when it's not snowing. And uh, so I actually enjoyed this trip and went back and got to spend some time, and I enjoyed listening to Chad's treatment of chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. And some of the things that I took from listening to that is Chad talked about terms that are found in the changing of our minds. Terms like darkened, alienated, and calloused are replaced with renewed, restored, and repurposed. And as we read our text today, Ephesians 4, verses 25 through 32, you're going to see that Paul begins with one of those trigger words, therefore. He's relating what he's writing now to what we talked about last week. Let's read. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." There's a lot there, but I just want to trigger us back to what Chad talked about last week. To put on the new self means to change our minds. It means to make a choice. Uh, Dr. Timothy Keller said, there will never be a distinction in our living if there's no distinction in our nature. I, I want that to swell in the room for a little bit. There'll be no difference in the way we live if we're not different, if we're not changed. I don't mean acting different. I don't mean putting on airs and doing Christian things. Paul says that the work of the Holy Spirit in us is to bring us sanctification and glorification. It's to change our nature. And for our nature to be changed, as Chad pointed out last week, your mind has to be changed. We have to put off the thoughts of the world and put on the thoughts of Christ and remember what that's all about, what that means. That's why last week in verse 17, uh, Paul said, you should no longer live as the Gentiles do. That to say that I follow Jesus but nothing's changed is either evidence that you're trying to change yourself or that you're really not interested in following Christ in this new path. It, it indicates one of those two. 
So to put, on, to put off the old self and to put on the new self is to live what we would call an examined life. Uh, you know, one of my concerns is when I talk to people and, and when I get the opportunity to talk with folks, they'll often uh, hide sin behind the term mistake. Uh, we all have done this, I'm sure. We've said, well, I made a mistake. No, you made a choice. There's a difference. A mistake is tripping over a piece of furniture that you didn't know was there. A choice is when you kick the furniture. And what Paul says, we have to put on the mind of Christ so that the things of our old life, the things that killed us and brought us death and destruction, are no longer enticing to us by focusing our mind on the things that are better, the things that are good. I was cutting the grass recently and listening to a podcast, and in this podcast, the guy who was talking said that he got an opportunity to ask Bill Hybels a question. Now, Bill Hybels is an entrepreneurial minister. He started a rather large congregation outside of Chicago called Willow Creek, and he talks about kind of the path that God's led him down. And this guy interviewing him said to him, said, what question do you ask when you have to make a leadership call? In other words, Hybels, what are you thinking when the opportunity comes for you to make a decision. He said he has one question he asks himself every time. What would a great leader do here? I really love that because there's a humility to it. He doesn't find himself a great leader, so he imagines if he were, what, what should he do? And I really thought about that question and answer quite a bit because I'd like to re- rephrase it. When an opportunity comes into my life, an opportunity to make a choice, can I ask the question, what would Jesus want me to do? What has Jesus told me to do? Or even, if I may, what would Jesus have done? Because when you ask that question, you're putting on the mind of Christ. You're making a choice based off a scripture of what God might have us to do. So the question this morning is, if the truth of Ephesians is correct, then how has the grace of Christ altered my existence? How do I live distinctly? How has my nature been changed because of his grace, his mercy? How has it shown? Uh, Last week, Chad read these words taken from verses 17 through 24, put off your old self. Be made new in the attitude of your mind and put on the new self. Choices. To place my old life, which was decaying and rotting, to put it away, to put on the mind of Christ, to change my attitude, and to live in a new way. Our identity changes our behavior. If we believe the first three chapters of Ephesians then the practicality, the real living that comes out in chapters 4, 5, and 6 is not something we have to do. It's something we'll want to do. Let me explain it this way. The first point I want to make this morning is we respond from a place of relationship. This is what Paul wants us to gather. The life that we live comes from a place of relationship. We do things because of who we are. I do things in freedom. I don't have to do these things so that I get God's attention. I do these things because I already have it. I remember my, my dad. My dad's a funny guy. He, he doesn't say a whole lot, but when he says something, it's normally well-crafted. Uh, I called him and said, you know, Heather and I are pregnant, and we were going to have the first grandchild, and my dad had four boys, and so my dad laughed, and he goes, you know, it takes a man to make a man, and he was just being a goofy father. I said, thanks, Dad. It's a little boy, and he goes, well, good, well done, and then he laughed, and he said, Mark promised me one thing, and I said, what's that? And he said, don't raise a brat. I thought that's interesting, because if I look back over my life, Almost every time I got swatted, I was being a brat. And he's like, I can take a lot of things, but I cannot take you showing off and acting up. Ah, it's amazing. So here's what it is. Church, you don't have to act up to get God's attention. You already have it. He's more passionately in love with you than you could ever be passionately in love with him. He's interested in your day. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. It's a, it's a fascinating challenge for all of us to understand that our testimony 
comes from the fact that we are loved, not so we become loved. We live in a world that is transactional. We're always trying to do something to get the people we love to do something to us in return, to offer us something, to receive us, to bless us, to grace us. Paul says, no, we've got it backwards. In the kingdom of heaven, under the covenant of God, his love is a guarantee. Now live in the love, and the love will change your behavior. That's the first point. So, what does it look like? Second point this morning is we act from a place of trust. If what I've told you is true, and I'm not asking you to believe me, I'm asking you to test it for yourself. Open the word of God, trust the spirit of God, and see what God reveals. But when you live this out, you will develop a visibly distinct lifestyle. Not because you've just made great choices, but because you're motivated by honor, you're motivated by pleasing, you're motivated by living to the respect that you've received. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the words of Christ, let the truth of the gospel, not just the facts about Jesus, but the facts about why he came, what he did, what his intentions were, and how it changes the world by building a kingdom in the midst of darkness that is the kingdom of light. Let those words richly dwell in you and watch how behavior becomes a response to someone you love and not an obligation you have to perform. When you think about it, right in the middle of this passage where Paul is showing us what a distinct lifestyle we can live under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, listen to the practical, tangible ways we live. Do not lie, control your temper, watch your mouth, don't steal, work hard, give to the poor. Now, here's what's interesting. You can work on every one of these on your own. Every one of us can say, okay, I'm going to take these things, I'm going to walk out of here today, I'm going to give you five I'm going to show you five ways of the old life compared to the new life, and you can walk out of here and say, I'm going to do better, and I'll give you till Tuesday. Because this is not behavior modification. This is not try harder and you'll get better. If that worked, you'd be better, wouldn't you? I would be. Holy gravy, I'd be better than I am right now. Intentions and effort have not produced spiritual change in my life. I must be led by God, trusting God, and ambitiously being faithful. And then he does the heavy lifting. So the practical side of this. But before we get there, I want to go all the way to verse 30, and I want to show you what I think is the fulcrum moment for every one of us today. Verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I've asked them to leave this on the screen. I want you to look with me at the words. I want to begin at the end of it. Sealed for the day of redemption. It's done. The blood of Christ is all you'll ever need, church. You don't have to become better, stronger, or anything. God has done all the work to redeem you from your sin. Now live like it. You've been sealed. Sealed by the Holy Spirit for something much greater. Now let's go to the beginning. So then, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. I was doing some study in another book, and I came across something that uh, John MacArthur said about the word grieve that I never thought of, and it was refreshing. He said, you grieve over somebody only if you love them. But you don't grieve over something that doesn't matter to you. And when we can't grieve, we show pity. We show sympathy. But when you grieve, you really care. So I sat for the past two weeks thinking, what are some instances in my life where I've grieved? And they just, they hit me. What may seem insignificant to some of you, if you care about sports, and unfortunately I care too much. It's something the Lord's working on. That's why I'm a Cub fan. He's breaking me of why I should care, but I do. And I've actually prayed this. I'm not playing 
I've said to God, if you're going to let them get to a World Series, please let them win because I don't think I could handle them getting there, losing in the World Series and having to listen to all of you. I, I'm not deep enough yet. I'm not strong enough yet. I would quit or go off on a sermon and it would be my last day. So the Lord knows my weaknesses. I care. I can watch any sporting event. I've been loving the college World Series softball. I love it because I don't have a dog in the, in the race. I just love watching games. I don't care who wins or loses as long as it's good games. And I love that. But when I care, I care. I remember being nine or ten years old and our, uh, we had a little puppy and we had her for about six years and, and we were playing in the front yard and she decided for the very first time to go out in the road and she got hit and I watched her go. And I tried to be tough. I have three, two older brothers and a younger brother. We don't cry. You don't cry. That's a sign of weakness. And we all acted tough. And I remember going to school and the teacher saying something in class. To this day, I can't tell you what she said, but I, I just started bawling. I just walked out without her permission, went down to the nurse's office, faked like I was sick, and had him call my dad. Well, my dad was home, so he came to get us, or came to get me at the elementary school. And I remember getting in the car, and I, he was like, what's the matter? And I couldn't tell him, and I just tears pouring down my face. And I looked over, and he was crying too. And he goes, you miss her? Yeah. He goes, I do too. I grieved. Now, the problem is some of you hate dogs. And you're sitting here going, are you kidding? They eat and poop, that's all they do. No, 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 no. She... I loved her. I loved all of our dogs. And when any of them died, I've grieved. Why? Because I cared. Now, you can judge that I shouldn't love a dog that way, but you can't deny I did. Why am I telling you that story? I, I grieve over moments in my life where I've made choices that someone who loved me has given themselves to me and I betrayed them. I hope, they wouldn't be, I hope they wouldn't find out so I lived the way I wanted to live instead of the way I ought to live and they found out and I saw my loss of respect in their eyes. I saw the pain I brought them. I saw the questions that have been brought and to this day, not an exaggeration, not being overly emotive, I still grieve over the choice I made. It wasn't a mistake. It was sinful and I hurt someone who I wanted to think of me in a far greater way. I grieve. I still grieve. I'm forgiven. But the pain that I brought, the choices I made, grieve. Now, why am I telling you these stories? Let's flip to the beginning of this verse. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Well, how do you grieve the Holy Spirit? When the Holy Spirit loves you and your future more than you do. When you make choices to take the power available to us in Christ and trade it in for rotting flesh, for temporary filth, for things that have no substance. You see, the Holy Spirit doesn't look down on us and going, what's wrong with you? The Spirit goes, no, Mark, no, there's something so much more beautiful and great for you, but you're trading it in for rotting flesh. Does that make sense? And I know it's Sunday morning and it's early and it's gray outside and you're wondering what you're going to do all afternoon. Hang with me. If we're going to live a distinct nature, we have to look at the choices between the rotting flesh and the holiness of God and make a choice. Because left to our own devices, our nature will want to go back to eating the garbage instead of living at the king's table, experiencing all the goodness. Having said that, I want to show you how practical Paul is about the distinctions that need to be made in our lives. These are choices we get to make. Number one, exchange the protection of lying for the power of the truth. 
Paul just starts to say to the Ephesians, listen, the Spirit of God can lead you. And I've worded this intentionally. I, I played with this line for quite a bit the last two or three weeks. Exchange the protection of lying. Yes, we lie to protect ourselves. We lie to protect our image. We lie to protect our things. We lie because we don't want to admit why we made the choice we made. I saw on Instagram the other day, this, there's this one account I follow. It's not always healthy, and so I see it occasionally, and one of them said, the reason I'm late to your party is I really didn't want to come. And I thought, wow, that's truth. But we would never say that, would we? The reason I'm late to your party is I got tied up, I had things. No, no, no. You really didn't want to come. You felt you had to, so you showed up. We use lying to protect us. But Paul says, no, live in the power of the truth. He says, don't, don't tell lies, because Satan is the father of lies. Satan lies about God. He lies about Jesus. He lies about heaven and hell. He lies about what's good and what's bad, what's right and what's wrong, what's healthy for you and what's not healthy for you. He says temporary satisfaction is greater than delayed gratification. And the Bible says, no, no, no. He's giving you so close to the truth, but it's not true. Don't live in a world of lies. Choose to speak the truth with love, to speak honestly, to help people grow in the truth, because we are people of the truth, are we not? It says that, uh, the Bible says, God is true and every man a liar. What does that mean? Well, it means what my father taught me. When you and God disagree, Mark, you're wrong. Every man, there's a way that seems right unto a man, but its end is destruction. God knows the truth. Jesus is described by saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but by me. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of truth who will lead you into all truth. And Jesus said the words of God, the scriptures are truth. Thy word is truth. So we have to make a choice to trust the truth of God or to protect ourselves with the lies we've all lied. It's a choice we get to make. So I'm going to ask you, because of these five, I'm going to ask you a series of questions. Now I know you'll do a lot better than first hour because they didn't get as much sleep as you, so you should be ready to go. So I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to ask you to testify. I know in church, I'm supposed to talk and you're supposed to listen, but that's not really what the church is supposed to be. As friends, let me ask you a question. If you believe in truth, then doesn't it make sense that lying has to go? That's the the life that Paul says. It's simple. He's not saying raise billions of dollars to cure world diseases. Those things are important. What he's saying is in the everyday, interactive moments of your life, the distinction of our character can break out to a greater degree than all public displays. Live in the truth. Second of all, exchange anger for forgiveness. Now, there are three Greek words for anger, and I could try to impress you with the Greek words, but I don't understand why we always do that. Let me tell you what the Greek words mean. There are three kinds of anger displayed in the New Testament. There's one form of anger, which if I can paraphrase it in our culture today, it's when you completely lose it. It is an explosive, uncontrolled anger. So when you completely lose it, the Bible says that's never okay. It is never okay to say, I was just furious. I said whatever I wanted to. I feel better about it, but the destruction is ridiculous. That's not okay. There's another kind, which is a seething, fusing, uh, excuse me, fuming resentment. This is when you, as my parents used to say, my mom would say, I'm just stewing on something. That means you just boil it and boil it and boil it, and it gets thicker and thicker and thicker. And the third kind is a conviction kind of anger. This is when something bad has been done, and it's righteous indignation. Now, Jesus walked in the temple. We know that Jesus had a temper. He walked in the temple. And he not, if we've often, in, a, in American culture, we've turned that Jesus saw they were selling albums in the foyer, and that's wrong. That's ridiculous. 
What they were doing is overcharging poor people for sacrifices. And they were seeing a person come in with their, the best sacrifice they could have, and they were saying, that doesn't qualify. You're going to have to buy at an inflated price sacrifices from that guy over there, or it won't be worthy. And Jesus could not stand when the disadvantaged were disadvantaged again. And he turned the tables over, and he said, I'll have none of this. You will not do this in God's house. Righteous indignation. He turned over tables. He broke things. He threw money around. He even picked up a whip and started smoking people. And it's biblical. That's how I drive, and I feel so good about me. I do. It's good to know I'm right in the Lord's will. Maybe not. Paul says, no, no, we choose to find in our anger grace. So what do we do? Here's your second question of the morning. If we believe in mercy and grace, then doesn't that mean that resentment and unforgiveness have to stop? It's a choice you get to make. Yes, and I know, every time I preach on forgiveness, I'm fully aware in my heart that there are some people that have been placed away from me because I can't trust them anymore and I have a trouble forgiving them. I'm gonna be honest with you. I'm no different than any of you. I know what I should do, but it's often hard to do it. Why? Because there's something that feels good about having the power over somebody who's wronged me to simply say, you know you did it, I know you did it, and so I'm gonna be better than you. And yeah, that's not biblical. That's almost as bad as exploding in wrath. It's turning around and saying, no, no, because I believe that God knew exactly what I did and he could be superior over me by his mercy and grace. He has welcomed me back home. He has embraced me. He put a ring back on my finger. He put a robe around me. He called me his son. He welcomed me back. How in the world could my nature allow me to feel superior to any other human being? Third thing, we exchange selfish slavery for hard work and sharing. Oh, this is American controversy right here. This is where it says, if a man will not work, neither should he eat. Now, I don't say that like some political statement. Here's what Paul says. We live in an age where people have concluded that if, if there's something I want, I should have it, even if I can't afford it. I'm going to have it now. I'll pay for it later. Paul says, be very, very careful that you owe no man a debt. That doesn't mean that you never borrow. It doesn't mean that you don't have a mortgage. What it means is, when you take on a debt, you give your words, you'll pay it back. And as a believer, it's important that you don't promise something you have no intention of delivering. So he says you should work hard. And not only should you work hard, but you should work so that you have enough to share, not keep. That we don't say, as long as I have all mine, then I'll be helpful. As soon as I do what I want to do, then I'll help. No, no, no. You work and you minimize what you want so that other people can have what they need. In other words, we're here to be taken advantage of. I know this is controversial. It happens in churches quite a bit. People will have discussion about, well, you know that person's only coming asking for food because they know you'll give it to them. Uh-huh. And we're giving it to them because we love them. My goodness, if my parents only gave to me every time I'd earned it, I'd have nothing. Holy cow, Braden would starve to death. But we give because we love. And yeah, we get taken advantage of. But that's why we're here. And if you don't believe that Christians are sometimes to be taken advantage of, ask Jesus how he felt on the cross when the man who did nothing wrong took on ours for us. He came to be taken advantage of. Because sometimes when we're taken advantage of and we're more generous than we keep into ourselves, God can make the greatest statements of love. So, if we believe in honestly earning 
and sharing with those who don't have enough, then doesn't that mean dishonest gain and selfishness have to go? Two of you? Really? <laughs> 800 people in here, two of you? Yeah, sure. No, okay. rest of you are thieves. But here's the truth. I don't know that I've ever intentionally stole except one time. It was at a Ben Franklin's dime store. Some of you might remember those. They used to have a wall of buckets of candy. They wanted me to take something. I know they did. <laughs> I love jawbreakers. Back before I became old and sugar ruined me. I love jawbreakers. My dad said I couldn't have a jawbreaker. And I knew my dad wanted me to have a jawbreaker, but I didn't think he had enough money, so I thought I'd take care of it myself. And I popped a jawbreaker in my mouth, and my dad saw it in my mouth, and he said, what do you have in your mouth? And I lied, and I said, nothing. And he said, show me your mouth, and I opened my mouth, and my teeth were multicolored from the jawbreaker. And my dad did what a compassionate father would do. I know some of you judge my dad, but I would not trade my dad for any dad in the world. He smacked me in the back of the head. The jawbreaker flew off, hit the dash of the truck, and landed on the ground. He made me pick up the slimy jawbreaker, gave me a dime, made me go pay the manager the dime, and throw away the jawbreaker. I'm 50 years old, and I can tell you, how old I was, where it happened, at the Ben Franklin's in Southman, Indiana to this day. He taught me a valuable lesson. You don't get what you can't afford. And you do not steal. You do not say it's okay. You can justify it all you want. You were wrong. And he had me tell my mom what I did. It was an indelible moment in my life. But you say you don't steal? Okay. Do you owe somebody something that you're not repaid? Do you owe a worker a rightful bonus or a proper paycheck, but you've decided to hold off on that until you can afford. You see, the Bible says, even in James, that the unpaid workers' cries go out to the Father. There's a thousand ways to steal, just most of them aren't known. But when we say to ourselves, I gotta have what I have, then we don't believe in honest earning. Paul says, no, a Christian spends what they have and don't spend what they don't. And I know that for some of us, we're so upside down financially, we don't know how to get out of our own way. There's help here. There's some wonderful classes with some experienced debt counselors who will show you from a biblical standpoint why deciding today to live within your means is worship. I encourage you to look into that. Fourthly, and I'll go quick, we need to exchange corrupt words for fitting words. When I grew up, I always read this passage. It basically said, you know, you couldn't have any obscenities. You stub your toe in the middle of the night and you said a bad word. If you died by morning, you may go to hell. That's how I live this text. I realize it's really not that simple. The word, I'm told, the word for corrupt words means rotten, decaying, poison. You know, outside of college, I don't, I look at the gallon of milk now and I see what the expiration date is and my wife, within two days of that, it's got to go. I remember in college, we thought we had four days on the other side of that. We are like, sweet, it's not chunky yet, we'll drink it. And uh, those are what words do. They're corrupt, they're filthy, they're damaging. So it's not just obscenities, it's sharp words that turns one person against another by, you know, I'm just telling them the truth about them, I want to warn them. No, those are corrupt words. Their intention is to bring division. And I have to say this, I am so grateful to be a part of a church. And this is what you all do, it has nothing to do with us. That's what you do, and I mean us staff. I love being at a church where divisive words don't split this place in half. Many of us have come from churches where the reason we're here is because words have killed the Lord's unity and the church doesn't stand for anything. But we live in a place today where maybe it's just because there's enough of us, divisive words get weeded out. And it's not okay. Paul says here they should be encouraging, they should be necessary, and they should be gracious. Ask yourself that. Does my speech encourage people to follow Christ 
to be faithful, are they necessary for the person? I think that's interesting. Are they necessary for the moment? My wife has taught me with my boys, being right sometimes is mean. You can tell Braden why he struck out, but you need to tell him three things that you believe about him before you tell him the one thing he can do better. I have to learn that. Because sometimes even the right word in the wrong moment can be destructive and painful. It doesn't mean we hide the truth. It simply means we pray for the right timing to speak the truth in a way that it can build up. And lastly, it needs to be gracious. So here's your fourth question. If we believe in building people up with the words that have life, then that means wasted, destructive talk has got to go, right? And so lastly, we exchange competitive struggling for supernatural grace. Competitive struggling? Yeah. I'm not against you. You're not against me. Our church isn't against that church. Remember we talked about one faith, one hope, one body, one Lord, one spirit, one baptism, one God? We're all on the same team, trying to lift up the same Jesus, trying to offer his grace to those who don't know it. This is not me versus you. Who's living better? No, this is us living in the grace we all received, which means how we treat other people. That's why in verse 30 again, it says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let the voice, the words, the leading of the Spirit be your motivation. If You will have misunderstood me if you walk out of here today going, I'm going to do better. That's not what we're asking. That's behavior modification. What I am asking you to say today is, I'm going to surrender to living in forgiveness rather than in arguing. To live in the truth instead of telling lies that project me as something I'm not. That I'm going to ask God for the ability to work hard, to enjoy what I have, and not become greedy with what I don't. That I'm going to go ahead and share with people who don't have because I have so much. And that I'm going to choose to trust that what God's doing in all of our lives is the grace that I need most. And when we do that, watch God make a difference. Paul concludes in verses 31 and 32. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. That's me versus you. But be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. How? Just as Christ, as, as in Christ, God forgave you. Verses 31 and 32. I need to ask you just a core question this morning. Do you believe in new life? And do you believe this new life is to be lived in community? Then we're going to put away those things that promote me over you. Us over another church. One community over another community. We're not here to be competitive. We're here to be unified around the grace of Christ. So if you answered me honestly, then we believe in truth, which means lying has to go. We believe in mercy and grace, which means resentment and unforgiveness has to go. We believe in honestly earning and sharing, which means dishonest gain and selfishness have to go. We believe in building people up instead of tearing others down. And we believe in new life, which means new things and new hope led by the new spirit. This morning as you exit this building, whether you go to get your little people or whether you're just going out to get something to drink or just visiting with those that you've met or who you don't see until you gather here and worship. In that corner, to my left, to all of your right, in the back southwest, or southeast corner of our foyer are some tables set up for prayer. You see, because if you try harder, you're going to be where you are two days from now. 
and very little changes because our habits are so ingrained that most of the time we don't even know the choices we're making. But if you want the Spirit of God to open your heart, if you say to God today, I surrender, help me with one step in the direction you're calling me to do, my God is there for you. He cares, he's engaged. But for some, you're tired, you're scared, it's a lot of weight on you, then you're not walking alone. We encourage you to go to the table. We'd love to pray with you. Now, I laugh because most of you go out that corner so no one thinks you'll go to those tables. But listen, we're a people that are broken who have a God who fixes broken things. Do we not? So if you want someone to journey with you in prayer, it is more an admission of strength than it is a mission of weakness to say, I need prayer. Because I believe it's through the Holy Spirit of God that he moves and changes lives. It's not going to be through this guy, not through this church, and through no programs. If God's not engaged... It's wasted. So if you're scared, you want someone to pray with you this week, you want the assurance that you're not alone, come be prayed with. Because we can keep secrets. We just share them with God. And we, we trust that God will do a good work. So this morning as we sing, as we celebrate, remember the words as we sing. If we believe that the old flesh needs to be put off, then let's go before God asking him to teach us how to walk different. Stand together. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.